wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff. Give me a full ballerina skirt and a hint of saloon and I'm on board. Mm. I can't go back. Welcome to the She Became Visible podcast. I'm your host, Renee Steelman. This podcast is my story. It's your story. It's our story. It's all the stories of all the women who one day knew that it was time to remember who they were, who they are, and stand up and be seen. Good afternoon. Welcome to She Became Visible. I'm very excited. I'm not going to waste a lot of time with any other information. Uh, Similar to when, you know, they stand up in church and say, we're not going to take up a lot of time, but let me give you 4,000 hours of, um, uh, you know, information. So I'm not going to do that. I have uh, as my guest today, Felicia Marsh, and I'm going to read you her bio because, like I said to uh, Felicia when we met this morning, um, her bio makes me feel like a total slacker. Like, what have you been doing for 65 years, you know? Uh, anyway, yeah. So Felicia Marsh is a MALPC. She is the owner and clinical director of her private practice located in Scottsdale, Arizona, where she specializes in child and adult trauma-focused care. Felicia received a Master's of Arts in Counseling and a Certificate of Advanced Graduate Studies in the Treatment of Trauma, abuse, and deprivation from Ottawa University. She received a Bachelor of Science in Psychology from Arizona State University, where she minored in both pre-med biology and theater. I think that's a fabulous combination. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And um, she is a clinical and forensic mental health therapist working with victims and offenders of violent crime with specialized training in domestic violence and sexual abuse and works with children, adolescents, and adults. And I could go on for another 4,000 pages of her background, but welcome, Felicia. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Oh, my gosh. And the reason I contacted Felicia is because, as many of you know, there is a big storm in the world of news concerning the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and a very severe sexual child abuse case in Bisbee, Arizona. And one of the things that comes up in a lot of people's conversations is the state-by-state ruling of whether any kind of ecclesiastical leader is required by law to report abuse. And so I contacted Felicia, and we're going to discuss that. Um, I have learned that it is a state-by-state law, is that correct, as far Mm -hmm. as you understand it? Yes. And uh, there are states, I think, if I remember correctly, Oregon, Washington, and New York are mandatory reporting states. I think California is also Mm -hmm. uh, required. But there are states like Arizona that do have little uh, cliques in there that kind of let this client um, penetrate penitent, what's it called, penitent, uh, uh, where they have a privacy, there's a privacy law which prevents them from. So anyway, if any of you have not, let let me just give you a little bit of background information. If any of you are not aware, please pull up the AP News. The article came out um, the 1st of August. My printer will not give me an exact date, but I think it was uh, 7th or 8th, I can't tell. But anyway, the 1st of August, 2022. The article was written by Michael Resendez, and he is the reporter who broke the story of child abuse in the Catholic Church, and he was the focus of the movie Spotlight that talked about the uh, Catholic Church and the problem they were having with child abuse. So he wrote this article, and as I mentioned, it was about a family in uh, Arizona with a severe case of child abuse. So um, I contacted Felicia, and I said, are you aware of this? And she said, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so tell me, um, you mentioned that you are, you are kind of, you, your specialty is helping people that have had sexual abuse, trauma, or uh, other kinds of, of sexual abuse. So tell me how you fell into that. Was that something that you decided right out of your uh, learning that this was an area that you wanted to focus on? 
or and then also go into your uh, experience now as a therapist and what you're running into. Sure. So I grew up knowing that I wanted to be a therapist by the age of 12. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I had a lot of personal experiences growing up that kind of led me in that direction, um, including growing up with abuse in the home. And I won't get into specifics, but uh, I definitely have experience with that. And then knowing others growing up with similar issues and situations, it just became a, a big passion of mine. So I started studying it at a very early age and um, just took my life and education in that direction. And now, I, like you said, I do have my own uh, private practice and I work with victims of sexual abuse, domestic violence, other types of abuse and trauma. And um, I, I do work with children and adults both. And then, I'm sorry, what was your other question? Well, the, qu- the question was, um, you dis- when did you kind of start area of focus became sexual abuse or sexual trauma? And do mm-hmm. you see that as more of the, the, the people that are coming to you? Is that the trauma that they've dealt with more than other forms of PTSD or something like that? Is that what you deal with most? Yeah, I would say... The majority of my cases are split between sexual abuse and domestic violence. Mm. Um, So lots of uh, adult domestic violence victims. But I'm actually a board-certified sexual abuse expert, so people do seek me out because Mm. of that sexual abuse expertise. Um, I actually specialized, I guess, in sexual abuse um, after I graduated with my master's degree and while I was working on my initial licensure for my independent license. I worked at the resolution group in Mesa working with both victims and offenders of sexual abuse. So that's where I got the bulk of my sexual abuse training. And then I just took that into my own practice. Okay. Is that center in Mesa? Is that a for only people that have suffered for, with some kind of sexual abuse? They actually do work with child victims of, of all trauma, but they started out strictly as sexual abuse. Okay, okay. I'm curious to find out, I was listening today to some statistics, and they were saying that um, Utah uh, is the highest uh, statistic ratio of child abuse in the nation, mm. with Idaho coming in second, and I believe California coming in third, or it could have been all three of them rank higher in statistics as children, of course, females more than male, but mm-hmm. the statistics are higher in Utah, Idaho, and and California. And ironically, the number of Mormons in a state completely uh, disregarding any kind of abuse, but just religiously, the number of Mormons in the United States, the highest number is Arizona, Idaho, and California. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a very, uh, like... Uh, like I heard, it's not a causation, but it's definitely a correlation. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's very interesting. And I think it's a little bit hard to kind of separate those two things from the relationship between the church and the uh, dogma that goes behind uh, some of the way chur- the church handles discretions in a lot of different areas. But um, so you, I know when we talked on the phone, you mentioned that um you deal with a lot of people that come from fundamental religions that have this problem with sexual abuse. Can you talk about that a little bit and why that is, you think? Yeah. So there, with these fundamental Christian or, or just fundamental religions in general, there there is a lot of dogma and they are, are very controlled and sheltered within those communities and those cultures. So they typically only uh, associate with other people in in that particular religion or or organization. So they are very sheltered. They don't get a lot of outside influence or experiences. So they they just don't know what they don't know, Mm -hmm. in addition to being indoctrinated with, with very puritanical beliefs and and standards it's just sort of a perfect breeding ground Mm -hmm. to 
create victims and there's no checks and balances for the perpetrators. Mm-hmm. Do you find that in primarily the Abrahamic religions? So you've got, you know, the Christians, Jewish, Islam, Muslim, uh, where there's a very high patriarchal uh, hierarchy. And so there's a, it's a very male dominated religion. And so there's, does that contribute to the amount of sexual abuse that's that goes on in those groups or communities? It certainly could. So Mm -hmm. theoretically, yes, the the more patriarchal a a particular religion is, of course, the more likelihood they are to protect men Mm -hmm. in that particular religion. I don't know that we have the statistics necessarily on all of the different religions and and cultures and sexual abuse, at least I can't recall specifically, but there is definitely a correlation there. Sure, sure. And I wonder too if um, uh, some of the, some of the, what do you think some of the elements are? Like you said, the isolation is mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. where they're, they're almost um, instructed religiously to stay away from people that are in the world or stay away from people that um, don't believe the way you do because they might you know, harm your faith or somehow persuade you. So that's one thing that's that they have in common. And then there's the purity culture, uh, which goes along with the modesty culture, which seems to be thrown on women, not men. And, um, you know, that's one of the things I struggle with a lot because there are so many wonderful people that aren't as black and white thinking as I am, as I was trained to be. Mm -hmm. I mean, I grew up in a black and white thinking family. And then the church didn't, the church that I belonged to formerly was very black and white. It's either good or bad. And so I have a heart, I struggle with it. And I really admire people who can look at the gray areas and give space for other thinking. And, but one of the areas that I really struggle with is the, um, the burqa and the, you know, the thing that, and, and, you know, with freedom of religion and freedom to write. And I know there are uh, probably quite a few of these women that they do this willingly and lovingly, just like people that were yeah. in my church go along with the polygamy and, and some of the mm-hmm. patriarchy, patriarchy because uh, it brings them happiness. It works in their home. So they don't find any reason to not go along with it. Um, but dang, that's hard. I there's a very large community in the, where I used to live, and I would see these women in the grocery store and and just completely covered from head to toe. And then there's their husband in a pair of jeans and, and a shirt. And, and I'm like, why is that okay? Why do you think yeah. that's okay? Yeah, that's horrible. Yeah, but um, so that's one of the things I struggle with. But um, in Arizona specifically, because we're going back to this mm-hmm. AP article, what is the ruling as far as mandatory reporting in Arizona? So we can get that clear right out the back, the, you know, in case people are going, well, that's not true because in my, my bishop reported a case and, you know, that kind of thing. So we need to put, you know, nip that in the bud that in Arizona, in the state of Arizona, what is the mandate? So according to the Department of Child Safety in the state of Arizona, Anyone who hears about any sort of abuse to a minor, so someone under the age of 18 or another vulnerable individual, is required by law to report that abuse. However, there's, there is no statute or regulation regarding clergy. There's no license or anything like that that clergy necessarily need to have, especially with in the Mormon religion, Mm -hmm. they aren't certified or anything like that. So they may interpret that a little bit differently, thinking that, well, they told me this in confidence, so therefore I don't need to report it because it's clergy. Clergy privilege. Privilege, yes. However, that's, that's not actually what the law says. The law says that anyone, so this includes parents, it includes caregivers, um, it includes teachers, anyone with whom this child has a close relationship or uh, to whom the child goes to, to disclose this information, you are obligated to report. You are a mandated reporter at that point in time. 
Okay, so they don't specify necessarily. They do not specify. Like, so like I've heard, you know, in certain states that uh, teachers or doctors are mandated to, they, ha- they must report. Um, so they don't, so that's why this doctor who was also the bishop of this family was not required. Oh, well, no, actually he was required because he's a human. So in Arizona, you're saying if you are a human, if you are, a if human, you're an adult yes. human, you are required, yes, you are required to report. So the fact that he was a, their family physician and the bishop, yeah, he was like, three times required he you're was, a human yep. you're a doctor and you're a clergy yes and you chose not to report it yes yeah that would definitely be illegal interesting so one of the problems i think too that has been brought up because of this article is the ability to rehabilitate perpetrators abusers um and then also talk to me talk a little bit about that the the ability to rehabilitate and then also the ability to heal for these these poor kids that have been so where where what are the what are the statistics on that as far as lifelong success in either not necessarily i hate to use the word getting over because you're never going to get over something like that but being able to be a successful functioning adult with this trauma so do you know what the statistics are as far as like being able to rehabilitate perpetrators it Honestly, it depends on the type of perpetrator. So there are different categories of offenders, and those categories are based on what the particular perpetrator is motivated by. So Mm. you have some who are uh, sex addicts or highly sexualized, and they're more opportunistic um, as opposed to someone who's a little bit more organized and methodical and actually plans out and, and looks to target and groom victims, um, then you have a different category such as pedophiles. Mm. And those are the ones who are sexually attracted to prepubescent individuals. Mm. So you you do have different types of Mm. offenders. Mm. So, you know, we we would have to take that into account when discussing this. Right. So... In order for anyone to change, they first and foremost have to want to change. There you go. That's always true. You can lead a horse to water, right? Yes. Yes. So even if they're mandated to go to treatment through a court order, probation, et cetera, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to take it to heart or that they are going to change their sexual desires or motivations. Mm. What we do see oftentimes is... um, maintenance of symptoms or um, maintenance of sobriety, so to speak, with regards to not relapsing because they don't want to get in trouble. Because pedophiles, for Mm -hmm. example, they actually have to be on lifetime probation and and continue with maintenance because they are actually attracted to children, so Mm -hmm. they're considered more at risk Mm -hmm. to reoffend recidivism. So someone who is still on probation or still has to check into treatment every once in a while is probably less likely to offend overall because they just because they don't want to get in trouble. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about treatment or or healing an offender, etc., we have to know like what are we looking at and what does that actually mean? And really all that means is not reoffending. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to fix them. That's true. Because there there really isn't a treatment for that necessarily. Right. Um yeah, there's there's no real cure for pedophilia or things like that that we know of. It's just more maintenance of don't do that again yeah. or you know right. your your consequences are going to be more severe. That's interesting because like you say, comparing it to any of the sobriety programs that are out there mm-hmm. that have, you know, systems set up where you can go anywhere in the world, let's say if you're suffering with alcoholism or drug abuse or something like that, and you've decided to join AA, that's going to be your, your support program, you can go anywhere mm-hmm. and find a program. And a lot of these people daily go to a program, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a sponsor that they can call at any time. Is there anything like that set up for people that are suffering or, or dealing with the sexual, uh, you know, abuse issue? Like if, if you're a, a pedophiliac and you know that about yourself, you've gone through a program, you don't want to offend anymore, 
do you have a sponsor? Is there a meeting you can go to every week? Do you have a coin? I've been free for you know a year. Like, um, not not a coin. So the the AAs and um, e- even like Sex Addicts Anonymous. So okay. those are not run by professionals. Right. So those are you know strictly more like peer support programs uh-huh. where you can go to get support. But if you're dealing with something that is an actual crime, sex offense or sex offenders are criminals because they have committed a sex offense, uh, okay, if that yeah. makes sense. Sure. So a, a treatment program would have to consist of the, the legal component. So, you know, probably someone to check in with in, in probation, um, having an actual therapist, et cetera. So with regards to the programs like you're talking about, there is a sex addicts anonymous. Mm. However, that yes, somebody could go to that for sure just to get a sponsor, but that does not address the offense because an offense is a behavior that isn't necessarily even related to sex addiction. You can Uh be a sex offender without being a sex addict and Uh vice versa. Uh So um, you really need professional treatment if if someone is a sexual abuser. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And then like you say, there's the legal aspect where there are people that voluntarily go into some kind of a drug addiction or, or... or um, alcoholism, and they've never gotten a DUI, they've never done anything illegal, they just know that this is really harming their lifestyle and their family or whatever, so they choose to do that. Versus, like you say, uh, and if people act on a some kind of a sexual dysfunction, yep. then there's going to be a criminality attached to it. Correct. That's a good point. That's a really good point. Mm-hmm. Huh. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. very complex. Very complex. And I know I watched a documentary the other day about, and I can't remember what state it was in, but there was a group of, there was a village of mobile homes mm-hmm. that people who had been um, uh, arrested and convicted of some kind of sexual crime, especially involving children. And then, they, of course, then they have those laws that are put into, you can't live within so many feet or Correct. so many yards, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So they, they have started this little village that these men mostly live in because they want to be there to support each other. <laughs> I thought, oh, well, that's an idea. I mean, we should start these villages, you know. <laughs> but they, the one guy was admitting, I mean, he was saying, I am a, a pedophilia. I, I, uh, mm-hmm. I, I, uh, I, I'm never, I'm not going to get cured. I know this is my problem. This mm-hmm. is what I've done. I really like living here because there's no temptation. We support each other. We're here for each other, yada, yada, yada. I was like, Wow. Okay, mm. that was very interesting. That could also be a double-edged sword, though. Oh, Get a bunch gosh. of you know pedophiles no and sex offenders together. It's like, oh God, what yeah. are they? You know, like. Know. So yes, on the one hand, that yeah. can certainly be supportive, yeah. but then it's like, oh, okay. But then also, the do you have internet? Because that's a bad thing. Yeah, too, the, and you know? they they shouldn't have internet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so so those who actually do have pedophilia, typically, like I said, have to be on lifetime probation and maintenance, and and they're not allowed to have right. internet access. Right. So how do you deal, because like I said, I, I think people think that this is a black and white problem. Mm-hmm. I think they think uh, a person comes to an ecclesiastical leader, a pastor, a bishop, a priest, or whatever, and they admit that they have a problem. They, they have a problem with pornography, like this gentleman did, and, I, and he also admitted to his bishop that he was abusing his uh, five-year-old. Mm-hmm. And so you admit that, and then the bishop... In this particular religion, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, in 1995, they started a hotline. And Mm -hmm. before that time, they just would tell the bishops, we'll find out what the law is in your state and act accordingly. But then in 1995, there was an increase of lawsuits that were going up against the church. And they're like, all right, we've got to put a some kind of uh, silly putty in this hole or we're going to lose all our water. So uh, they started this helpline, which, mm-hmm. you know, directly goes to their uh, law firm that uh, law sees over the corporation. So anyway, it took a long time for all of this to co- co- come to be. But people, what they're saying uh, right now, people who have had the experience of going to an ecclesiastical leader and saying, my stepfather is abusing me or my brother is abusing me, uh, my bishop is abusing me, or you know, whatever. Um, people think, well, the bishop should have been required to call the police. Therefore, I think what they're thinking is, therefore, A equals B equals safety. And I think that there's a, there's a lot of systems out there. This is a system that's broken that needs to be fixed. There's also some problems with calling the police or calling Child Protective Services. So can you talk a little bit about how 
it's not, I mean, I think there is a, a black and white yes or no, yes, you should do this. Right. This yes. needs to be reported. Yes. So that's not an issue. We're right. not saying, well, should the bishops have to report? No, that's not the issues. We're saying, yes, they should. Mm-hmm. But then what happens when, if a bishop was to call, would they, should, in your opinion, what would be the first person? Do we call the police first? Do we call Child Protective Services first? And what constitutes abuse? Like if, if, you, if there's a family in your congregation that's neglecting their children, mm, mm-hmm. not necessary sexual abuse, but, um, uh, you know, where, how, how far up do we interfere with these families or where do we get people involved? What is your experience with that? Sure. So with regards to um, neglect and, and abuse and what do we report? So we, we would need to report anything that is actually harmful to a child. Now, for me, for example, solo practitioner, I, I don't have the resources necessarily to help a family, mm-hmm. whereas you know, a bishop or a clergy member if, if they see a family who just doesn't have a lot and maybe the children are being neglected, they certainly have much more resources to mm. be like, hey, you know, I, I see so-and-so is, you know, coming in dirty clothes. Like, let's go to your home. Let's take a look. Let's see what you need. They, they have m- much more services yes. to be able to help out yes. without necessarily jumping to, you know, calling DCS. That's a really good point mm-hmm. because what you're what you're comparing there is the difference between uh, an ecle- ecclesiastical system mm-hmm. that can go into a home and say, "Look, we're, we've got some neglect going on here. Right. Do you need food? Do you right. need clothing? Does someone need to show you how to use a washing machine? You yes, know, exactly. Uh, do we need to bring in somebody that can help? You know, are you is the mother suffering with depression? We need someone to come in and help her with the children." that's something that maybe a bishop could be told by someone else because these people are not therapists and they're not mm-hmm. professionals, but say, you know, I think we could handle this locally mm-hmm. and we could handle this in our congregation without having to report that, at, at least in the beginning. At least in the beginning, yeah. But I, is, so is that the beginning of the correlation where, look, we can bring them food, we can pay their rent, we can uh, bring them clothing, we can we can provide mm-hmm. school supplies because it is it's a very wealthy organization there can they're they're overlapping that into oh and we can also help you with sexual abuse do you i mean is that kind of like a oh yeah what a you know i was like oh, okay now yeah. you've just crossed a crazy line yeah 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 so there, there definitely is a line so let's say for example this this theoretical family we have who who's been neglectful for whatever reason and let's say the church gives them the resources and now you kind of sit back and you see okay do they use the resources what do they do when those resources are done do they ask for help do they continue follow up do they continue to neglect so if if we then see continued neglect beyond that um you know you would probably want to take steps to say, okay, what needs to be done, and um, do we now need to call DCS? However, there there is definitely a line that is crossed when uh, when it comes to abuse. Uh, abuse is much more black and white. So mm-hmm. let's say a child comes in with bruises and says, you know, mom or dad hit me with a belt, or they hit mm-hmm. me with a baseball bat, or they kicked me, etc., then we we would have to report that because that is a uh, firsthand report of this person did this to me mm. and you're a mandated reporter, so now mm-hmm. you have to report, hey, somebody in this home is hurting this child. The same with sexual abuse. Sexual abuse of any child is a crime. That is an automatic mm. report. So whether it's so-and-so touched me over the clothes, under the clothes, doesn't matter, you you have to make a report on that. Mm. That would include exposing yourself to mm-hmm. children, mm-hmm. taking photos of children mm-hmm. naked, having them pose, showing them pornography, etc. Mm. That's very interesting because that completely absorbs everything that was talked about in this article. Mm-hmm. Everything you just described was in that, you know, uh, very obvious that, and you know, that there was people, they said when the, when the Homeland Security came to the home, there was, cans of lubricant or you know laying around hello that's yeah. more than a red flag <laughs> much that's, more that's than a, a flyover yes. you know 
And I mean, so there were so many indications exposing himself, openly watching pornography in front of the children. Yeah. It wasn't just, and it wasn't just, there were three, there were six children altogether and three of them were, were abused. So, um, and I, I don't know if they were boys, girls, or if the, all three were the girls. I know two of them were girls. Um, so there were so many, so many things that the checkbox, check, 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 yep. check. We got a really bad problem here. So that is very, 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 very sad. Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that you said that in the state of Arizona, every adult is required and mandated to report. Correct. So there is, this is going to be an interesting case to keep our eyes on for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, did you... I know you were very aware of this letter that came out in the AP. Are you aware of the church's response to the article? Have you heard anything about that? You know what? I can't remember. I don't think so. Okay. There's been two. Okay. The first one that came out that said, that was mean. You know, you guys hurt our feelings. We're really good people. (laughs) We like Jesus, you know. And then the second one was like, oh, we're not putting up with that, you know. And they kind of of, uh, classified the AP on the same level as like TMZ, or People Magazine, you know, and we're kind of like, yeah, that's yeah, not going to no. work. Yeah, that's not going to work. <laughs> so um, who who brings the children to you? As a sex therapist who deals with, with abuse, who's bringing these babies to you? Is it the parents or who, who is referring these people to you? Yeah, so currently with being in private practice, it usually is the, the parent or the current caregiver. Um, most of them, it, it would be the actual parents bringing them in, the, the biological parents or the adoptive parents bringing them in to me. Now, when I worked at a community agency, it may have actually been the foster parents uh. or the adoptive parents. Um, sometimes it was actually the DCS mm. guardian, mm-hmm. social worker who mm-hmm. would bring them in. Um, but in private practice, it usually is the, the parents. Okay, so they find out from their children or somehow that that child has been abused. Yes. Obviously, it's not either one of them, or they wouldn't both be bringing their kids in. Or or do they do they have people that are like, oh, you know, it was, it was a Thursday night, I was really busy, I, I, was, just, I was just so stressed out, and I abused my child. No, no. you know, I mean, I no. think sometimes the, sometimes the stories I hear, that's honestly how some of these ecclesiastical leaders look at it. It's like, oh, he's a good guy, but, you oh know, he was God. stressed. You know, I mean, they just, they give so many excuses for this it behavior. It doesn't even make sense. Yeah, like, exactly. What? He was a good guy. I'm like, meaning what? Yeah, what does that, you and know, then they he was were just, stressed? Like, yeah. how is that supposed to be an excuse? Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so, okay, so, so okay, well, let's address that then. So if you have parents that are bringing their children to you, what, and let's say one of the parents was the abuser, what's, what do we, where do we go from there? Yeah, so that's probably half of Seriously? my child's sexual abuse cases. It, it was one of the parents. Biological uh, or it, step? It, yeah, the? it could be biological or step. So okay. typically with those situations, um, if, if the alleged perpetrator was a biological parent and the parents are not divorced, um, that becomes a very tricky subject for me. Yeah. So talk so, about mandate. Uh, yeah. So if yeah. you know if the child discloses that to me in session, then I would then have to make a police report on mm-hmm. that, and that becomes very sticky. Um, you know, with with the other parent. Um, sometimes they're they're actually in a custody case. You know, let let's say mom oh. is aware that child said dad sexually abused them. Um, mom and dad are divorced or they're going through a divorce, mom currently has sole legal decision-making because of the abuse allegations. That makes it a little bit easier from a legal perspective because mm. I don't have so much red tape. But really, I mean, we see it could be a biological parent, it could be a step-parent, it could be another family member, older sibling. There's just so many different people in someone's life it, it could be. Right. Wow. Mm-hmm. So that whole idea that the... Um, the secrecy policy that I know this the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is just just completely enveloped in the idea that secrecy works and that secrecy is the way that we keep everything rolling and started in the very beginning of the church. And I, I don't understand why people don't see that behind every form of abuse there's a secrecy there's always code. yes yeah. yeah and so the idea that we we keep silent to like you were saying okay so now we're gonna we're gonna come and see a therapist. 
but we want to keep this private. We want oh, yeah, to keep no, it in the family <laughs> and that kind of thing. Yeah, to yeah. To save the I, family. Mm, yeah, I have to let them know. Um, heads up, I am a mandated reporter, and I will report. And, um, you know, sometimes I have told parents, like, look, the child already told you that they were sexually abused. Mm-hmm. You actually need to be the one to make a report, you know, before I ever start working with them. Okay. And sometimes the parent will say, well, I really don't want to. And I said, well, you are a mandated reporter. And if you don't protect your child, you can actually get charged with neglect wow. by DCS for failure to, re- to protect, like, what, you know, what's wrong with you. So, right. Um, Interesting, because yeah. I know in this particular case, they were, according, you know, allegedly they were told by the uh, church attorneys to encourage other people to report. So, like, mm. you, well, you know, you don't report, but can you get the wife to report or can you get somebody else to report? And she, uh, one of the things that made me just absolutely like, was on the second response from the church, they kind of put the two parents together and they said, you know, neither one of the parents did anything and the, and the wife served some jail time. The husband committed suicide when he was in custody uh, of the police. And um, so almost like, well, it was both their fault. And it was like, okay, we need to talk about the abused wife. Yes. Uh, and where that, if, and even the bishop, who was the doctor, a.k.a. also the family doctor, oh, uh, acknowledged that she was a, a textbook case of the abused wife syndrome. Mm. She had checked out. She was like empty. She, he could yeah. see he, she was hollow inside. Yeah. And she did serve some time. But um, so how do you, how, oh, oh gosh, how do you deal, how do you do your job, first of all? I don't know how you do your job. But I mean, how do you deal with that? So you've got yeah. both parents coming in. Let's say they've got a custody thing. Yeah. She's mandated to report. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's got this abusive husband, you know, that's, that's, she's already mentally ill because of that. So is there, it, when, they, when it gets down to sentencing, is there some leniency in that case where you can see that the entire family's been abused? And, you mm. know, uh, differently maybe. Uh, depends on if it's physical abuse or sexual abuse, probably both. Um, so how do you deal with that? I mean, obviously this is not one mental issue. Correct. You're dealing with a whole family of, of mental issues in the family. Right. So, um, so you say to them, you understand that you are also mandatory reporters mm-hmm. and I am a mandatory reporter. Mm-hmm. So if you don't report this, I have to report this. Mm-hmm. And then do they come back? I'll <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll see you next Thursday. Um, sometimes people do. Like sometimes parents actually appreciate, you know, just uh, how honest and upfront I am about certain things. And then <laughs> there, there have been parents I've kind of scared off because they're like, oh man, she's, you know, we, we want to keep this... A secret yeah, in the gonna family tell and family she's secrets. gonna yeah, yeah. so <laughs> it it really just depends wow mm-hmm. okay but then then you've got the program that works kind of where they've taken the children out of the home and now they're in some kind of foster care the foster parents part of the deal is they're also going to receive therapy mm-hmm. is that correct yes yeah, is, so is it mandated that they receive therapy if they're placed in a foster home Usually DCS, the Department of Child Safety, will absolutely mandate therapy for okay. the child victim okay. because they, they have been through trauma. So normally okay. they do get them in. But here's the thing. It, just because a child is taken away from the parents doesn't necessarily mean that they're put immediately into foster care with some oh, okay. random foster okay. family. Okay, so they might be put in with family or something like that. Yeah, so okay. DCS always tries to go with the next of kin or who is closest to the family who is safe, who can provide for these children, who you know has an adequate income, who has a safe home, all of those sorts of things. Um, so they will do their due diligence to try to keep the children within the family system oh. or, or at least with someone that yeah, they know right. if at all possible before just jumping to some sort of random oh, foster strangers. family. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then if they, let's say they go with grandma mm-hmm. and grandpa, then are grandma and grandpa mandated to take them into therapy? Is that part of the deal? Like, yes. will you be willing to take the child and will you Yes. Yes. Take that's them typically part of their contract. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's a great program. I mean, unfortunately, yeah. now families are so separated. You've got you know family that lives all over the country, and 
And uh, but still, there's a lot of fabulous people that have stepped in mm-hmm. to save children for sure. Mm-hmm. And um, I know in the state of Arizona, there there were people that stepped in to help these these kids that were taken from this particular family. Thank heavens. Um, but it's absolutely amazing. So, what's the youngest child that you've treated? Uh, two years old. No. Yeah. And how do you how do you converse? How do you how do you deal with a child that's barely verbal at that point? Yeah, so for young children, we typically just do play therapy mm-hmm. or expressive arts. And then for children five and under, I also incorporate family therapy or parental uh, parent-child sessions. So the parent's to, in the room. Correct. Okay. Yeah. And then just tell the audience a little bit about what you do in play therapy. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, play therapy is a big topic. Um, it, it's complex. So a lot of people think play therapy, well, you're just sitting and playing with them. Well, no, there's, you, you do have to be licensed to do play therapy because it has to be based on some sort of theoretical orientation. So I do trauma-focused play therapy okay. where first I'll um, initially just kind of observe the child and building rapport with them from a very child-centered perspective maybe reflecting what they're doing, but I'm kind of more hands-off in the first few sessions because Mm -hmm. I want them to feel safe. I want them to feel comfortable. They haven't really had places where they've been safe, so I just want them to know this is a safe place for you to come. Um, You can talk about anything you want. You can play with things. There are a few rules, but this is really just your special And do they know why they're there? Um, I mean, how do you tell the child... You know, you're 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 living with Grandma, and we're gonna go see Felicia, mm-hmm. and um, and then what? I and mean, what what then what then what do they say? Because Daddy hurt you, and we want to. Yeah, know. so most our of mommy them, hurt you. I have to be fair. There are abusive yeah. women as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So typically speaking, children are gonna know why uh, they're going to counseling. Sometimes they may not, especially if if they're younger and they're preverbal. You know. Uh, under three years of age per se so that's where I come in and just you know build a a safe relationship with them and they don't necessarily need to know why they're there Mm. because they're you know they're they're pre-verbal they have no context for that so it's like maybe we're just going to do a fun play date we're going to go see this lady we're going to play with some toys yep it's going to be so fun that's all we have to tell them at that point that's really all you have to tell them you know around that age okay um but for for the older kiddos who are much more verbal and who can at least cognitively understand okay somebody hurt me and that's why I need to you know have a special person to talk Mm -hmm. to um I do a lot of education with them on this is what happened to you this is what it's called it's called abuse Mm -hmm. um and then you know I go through safe and unsafe secrets um healthy Mm -hmm. and unhealthy boundaries safe and unsafe relationships like there's kind of a like a structured curriculum per Mm -hmm. se that I I go through with them Mm Uh, is the secrecy a big part where you try it's hard to convince someone that's been threatened especially children yeah that you can convince them that it's okay to tell that there isn't a danger is that a yes. difficult area that you have to deal with sometimes not as much so the whole safe secrets versus unsafe secrets I do a whole um, sort of module on on that with mm-hmm. them as well. I have some books that cover that sort of topic. So I let them know, hey, you know, this is a safe secret. This is a unsafe secret. And then we go through some different examples mm-hmm. and they're able to identify, okay, this is an unsafe secret and I, I need to tell. And sometimes at an end of a session like that, I will have kids actually disclose, yeah, somebody did touch me you know, at, at school or wherever because right. they've been able to understand well, this is an unsafe secret, and I probably need to tell. Right. Yeah. So, how do you deal with? Because um, I, I had a, I attended a, a retreat recently, and there was a, a woman there who her, she was um, being very vulnerable and telling her story. And what really destroyed her family was her older son had abused her younger son. Mm-hmm. I don't remember how anybody found out about it, but they did the right thing and they called authorities. The child was taken yeah. out of the home. The other children were also taken out of the home, um, but then they were returned. So I'm sure that was traumatic for the whole family. They were returned to the home, but the child that had initiated the uh, sexual abuse uh, ended up going to juvenile. 
and he he's now in his 20s and he's been in and out of prison his whole life drugs comes out of a a session or a program of some kind and within weeks he's back into drugs and been through rehab many many times it's basically destroyed his life yeah and the other the child that he abused has done well uh, they were able to get fam, family therapy, and he's he's done well. But this child was destroyed. Mm-hmm. That's what people are afraid of when they refuse to to call the authorities. They're like, I'm sure they're thinking, I can save my child. If I call authorities, it's going to destroy them and our whole entire family, and maybe we can fix this ourselves. Oh, boy. So yeah. how do you address that? Because I, yeah. I think it's a legitimate fear. I mean, I don't, I don't think the prison system out in the world is particularly, should be applauded. Mm-hmm. I don't see a lot of really good things. I see a lot of uh, better programs in other countries. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if our prison system is just, you know, it's, it's not 1950 where, you know, Officer Jones is like, ah, let him spend a night in jail. He'll be better for it. <laughs> no, those yeah, days no. are gone. No. So, yeah. So how do you, because uh, you can't guarantee, how do you console a family with that, that yeah. kind of fear? Yeah, so when I'm explaining why we need to make police reports, I explain, okay, look, I I know that it's difficult to call the police on your own child. However, the reason why we need to do this is, one, we need to hold the perpetrator accountable, and two, what we really want to do is try to protect future victims because right. we know offenders are going to reoffend. It's not like they do it once and they're going to stop. Like right. that isn't how it works. Right. So I kind of have to explain that to parents sometimes like, look, this isn't a one-time thing. And if you think it is, you're very naive. Mm. Um, they, they're going to continue. And typically speaking over time, as they continue their offense cycle, their offenses get bigger and more complex over time. So you, they may start out small over here, but you know, in in ten years from now, they could be you know breaking into homes and raping people. Right. You know. Right. So we have to do what we can right. to stop the cycle, and that's how I explain that. Yeah, and I think that's a, a concept that's really hard. For people that don't have mental health issues to understand that it is never going to be a one-time only. Correct. Uh, because people do make mistakes and they go, oh, I'm never doing that again. Somebody that's mentally healthy, you know, would make a mistake. Maybe they drove drunk and got home one time and they thought that was insane. I'm never doing that again. Or, you know, so they put that on the same level as, oh, wow, I just abused a child. Whew, I'm never doing that again. Yeah, uh, you yeah. know, statistics show that's not the case in that no. kind of perversion. No, and I don't understand why Why would anybody think that was a mistake? Like, how do you accidentally sexually abuse someone? <laughs> <laughs> like, not the same thing as I, I forgot to pay for the crayons that were stuck under the shopping cart. Uh, right, it's same. like, uh, yeah. no, your, your, your penis does not accidentally fall into... <laughs> a child's vagina yeah what are you talking about yeah so you know sometimes you just have to break things down logically for people like how does that make sense that I know and I love that you said that because honestly the stories that I'm hearing the 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 stories that are coming out in different podcasts that are discussing this particular that is somehow that is how some of the authorities actually like it was a mistake. <laughs> like it was like, oh, I accidentally wore a blue shoe and a black shoe today. I, I, my lighting was bad. Yeah, no, it's, you know? it's never a mistake. Yeah. And, you know, I wish we had more time because I want to, I want to, I'd love to talk more about the idea, uh, like you say, the difference between a pedophile and, mm. you know, that was, that's amazing to me that, that you, you know, someone who grooms people that takes a while, gets to know them. And even though they're under the age of, say, 12, would they be considered what were the categories you had you had the pedophile that goes particularly after prepubescent children correct and then you have the person that grooms someone uh, gets their confidence builds a relationship is there a title for that type of person i guess i guess that'd still be a pedophile right um not necessarily okay. so yeah you do have different category different offender psychologies okay per se okay um, so you you have your organized criminals who are the ones who do take time to plan and prepare, and they may or may not be a pedophile. A pedophile is someone who's only attracted to prepubescent children. Okay, okay. And then you have sex offenders uh, who are attracted to postpubescent, you know, Mm. teenagers and adults. Mm. Um, 
So it really depends on the particular psychology, what motivates them, how they work. Um, you, you have your opportunistic that are, you know, just kind of sex crazed per se. Hello. And, you know, they, yeah. they, they see an opportunity and they take it right. without a lot of planning. So yeah. they kind of fall into organized and, and disorganized criminals. See, I find that fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, coming from a, a former member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I find that fascinating. Um, with the knowledge that has been brought in about the founder of the church, Joseph Smith, mm, uh, marrying mm-hmm. young girls and people, and I, and I heard this on a, on a wonderful, f- fabulous podcast done by Lindsay Hanson Park, who tries to teach people, and she keeps saying, stop calling Joseph Smith a pedophile. He was not a pedophile, but he definitely fell under the category of opportunist, grooming, all of these other categories that still puts him in the sex offender yes. a category. And I find that so fascinating because people are, are trying to, uh, they're, they're trying to, I forget what the technical term is, but they're, they're clarifying that that was done 150, 200 years ago. There were practices that went on then that aren't okay now. And I'm like, mm-hmm. never, never was that okay Ever, ever, ever. So let's stop using that as an excuse. But I do love that you separated those out because there is a category. There are different categories. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, Felicia, tell people about how they can follow you, where they can find your services, and how they can get in contact with you if they themselves are struggling. Tell everybody out there all about how they find you because you're amazing. Thank you so much. (laughs) Yes, and and I'm happy to help anyone that I can. So I do have a website. It's lighthousecounselingaz.com. I also have a YouTube channel just under my name, Felicia Marsh LPC. Um, And uh, yeah, my my Facebook and Twitter, I don't really do anything with with those. So, um, but yeah, you can find me on my website and then on YouTube. Okay. And I'll put those links in the podcast so okay. people can click on those Sounds and find good. you because you're absolutely fascinating. Oh, and thank I, you so I, much. I just want you to know, truly, I admire you so much because I, it's a, a tough job. Thank it's you. not necessarily a, you know, you're not climbing 50 stairs with oxygen tanks and a full fireman suit on, but the saving that you're doing, you don't also get to take off. You know, you don't get to take off the oxygen tanks and go home and go, whew, that was a hard day. I don't know how you sleep sometimes. It must be so, you have to do a lot of self-care. I do. I do a lot (sighs) of self-care, a lot of grounding, a lot of meditation. Yeah. And I I, I thank heavens there's people like you that, and I do feel like it's a, a calling. I do feel like people like you. They know from the, you know, that they're, they're listeners and their heart is, goes that direction. And, you know, I see that, you know, we have a severely disabled son and, mm. and my mom, I remember my mom suggesting that one time, you know, you should open up a home that takes care of severely disabled people. And I'm like, uh, I didn't sign up for this. This was not my calling to take care mm. of disabled children. Um, but there are people that are. I mean, there are, you know, so there's yeah. so many different categories of fabulous people out there that, that are, they just know the, the lane that they should go down. And mm-hmm. I, I admire that so much. So thank you so much for sharing your knowledge oh, thank and your you. expertise with us. Thank you so much for us. having me. It's a pleasure. So, well, I, I, I feel badly for Felicia because she thinks she's going to escape and this is going to be a <laughs> one and done. And I got news for her. She's going to be back. <laughs> We're going to have her back. So, uh, you know, if you go on the She Became Visible Facebook page, if you would like to ask Felicia any questions or if you have a suggestion for a topic that you would like to cover with Felicia on the podcast, I am welcome to ideas because I think that would be really fun. I would love that. Yes, yes. Please feel free to message me. Yeah, that would be so cool. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week. Mm